Welcome to the Beervana Podcast, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing all right. We're actually kind of doing the uh, double duty today because on their back porch is our, our next two beers. In, that, that's right. In different raw material stages. Yes. Uh, <laughs> one, we're hoping. One's is, mashing right now. Yeah, that's right. It's converting and producing something that will be fermentable. But with our brewing, you never really know. It could be. We think we're making a pale ale, but we might be making a, a, a table beer. <laughs> the uh, the joke is that we often try to make IPAs, and we and we keep creating session IPAs. That's right. So. We make we make hella session IPAs. So we're much better about talking about beer than actually making the beer. Turns yeah. out. Uh, so uh, welcome to the Beer Vana podcast. With me, of course, is Jeff Allworth, author of the Beer Bible and Cider Made Simple, and you can find him blogging at Beervana. And with me is Patrick Emerson, uh, economics professor at Oregon State University, and you can find him blogging at Beeronomics. Yeah, see, I like that better. Nice yeah. and succinct to the point. We've decided to cut a lot of the clutter out of that. You know us by now, right? That's right. Longtime <laughs> listeners, as we sure are. We're sure all of you are, will have appreciated the brevity, which we've destroyed now by talking about it. <laughs> so uh, the fact that we're brewing and potting together is actually uh, not a bad intro for our topic today, um, because you traveled all the way down to uh, Corvallis um, to meet me at my workplace, and we walked over and um, saw Tom Shellhammer and the big fermentation science program at Oregon State University. That's right, which... Apparently, neither of us had seen, even though you're located down there on that campus. Yeah, I was vaguely aware that it was sort of in that building. I wasn't actually sure. I didn't realize that they had that big... Uh, apparently, it used to be a big facility where they did a lot of fruit processing experimentation and testing. But it's this big, giant... Well, now it's mostly a brewery. Yeah. I guess it'll actually be even more. Mostly. We'll talk about that later. Um, so I didn't realize, because at the front of the building, you had no idea that there's this big addition on the back what could house a brewery yeah i wasn't even sure the brewery was going to be in there when i walked up because it just looks like a standard institutional university building and yeah. doesn't look like it necessarily is going to have cool equipment in there so i yeah. thought we might <clears throat> visit him at his office and then walk someplace else but yeah nope, and i've actually there. i've actually taught classes in that building that's the it's the food science building uh-huh. and i've had class classroom space allocated to me there so i've actually taught classes in that class in that building having no idea that all this stuff was going on um, the only thing I knew, because they have a big poster, is uh, the food science program at Oregon State University is famous for a couple of things. One of them is inventing the maraschino cherry. Yeah, I heard about that when you told me afterwards, <laughs> which I did not know about, but I did know about their more famous uh, creation, which is the, the Marion Berry. No, that's only more famous in Oregon. The well, maraschino cherry is world world famous maraschino cherry. The world has been made a better place thanks to candy candy cherries. Uh, that that may well be true, but as you know, Oregonians uh, refuse to acknowledge the rest of the world, and as far as we are concerned, Fair Oregon enough. constitutes everything. So yeah, here here in Oregon, the the Marion berry is the thing. Which okay. is which is by the way, for those who are outside the the state, uh, a blackberry. It's just a blackberry. It's a hybrid between a blackberry and a boysenberry. Yeah, well, it's just it's ah, like, it looks yeah. and, it looks See, and tastes like a I've blackberry. been in the building and I read the posters on the wall. Okay, um, <laughs> so we had such a good time with Tom that we're actually going to do a two for podcast because um, there were basically two two interviews we did with Tom. One was in his office where we talked to him, and the other was in the brewery. And Tom Shellhammer is the Norwester Professor of Fermentation Science at Oregon State University. Um, he directs the brewing education component of the fermentation science program. 
and teaches a bunch of courses about things like brewing science and technology, and he does a lot of analysis of beer and raw materials and talks about that. Uh, he also has sort of more general question uh, uh, classes about um, the history, business, and technology of wine and beer and spirits. Um, but we were particularly interested in talking to him because he is an international expert, maybe the international expert, um, in hop. Uh, and, and one of the world's leading hop researchers. Uh, we were really fascinated to, um, we're interested to talk to him about uh, hops and what we know and don't know about hops and what they impart to beer and how they do it. Yeah, it was very cool. Before uh, we sat down with him, he took us to his various labs. He's got, uh, two, it was, were there two or three labs that he had? I can't remember now. Uh, that's true. Sort of, he called them two, but one kind of had two parts. Right, uh, that's right. Uh, one, one was where all the, all the, technology exists which is hot and so they stick it all in one room right. <laughs> together because um, when it's all turned on I, I guess it makes a lot of heat and some and noise um, but they have a lot of fancy equipments machines that go bing and right <laughs> they have they have equipment that looks at uh, uh, alpha acids and what your IBUs are they have other equipment that will smell the hops for you and tell you if it's got myrcene or carophylline or one of those in there um, and then we went into the other room, which is, which is, I guess, not the lab, but that's the one where he had million little bottles uh, of, of aroma compounds. Yes. We were smelling them, and that's pretty cool. He, apparently, he's going to use those in a class uh, where he teaches people um, the different flavors and aroma, or I guess in this case, aromas of yeah. hops. So we, and then, we, smelled, we smelled one that was called Caddy. <laughs> it was very Caddy. Yes, we it smelled was very the, caddy. the stone fruit one. So that was, yeah. But the Caddy thing's interesting because, well, we'll talk about that. Yes, we will. Uh, <laughs> hey, that was a good tease, uh, unintentionally. <laughs> uh, and then the other part of the lab is where they had these um, big, uh, I don't even remember what you called them, but they boil, they boil hops and um, distill the essence of the hop boils or capture the oil, hop oils by distilling the um, the hop vapors, right? Um, is that what you call it? And then um, those students work with the oil throughout the year and yeah. do various studies and whatnot. So really cool stuff. Uh, so that's the first part of the interview is him. Um, after our little tour, we sat down and talked to him in his uh, in his office, and that's going to be the the part of the uh, of the visit that we um, include in this pod. And then the other part was when we went down to the brewery. Uh, and hung out there and talked about what's going on um, in the brewery and the kind of things they do. And we also tasted some beer, and that'll be in the part B of the podcast. And we were joined by Jeff Clausen, who is the uh, kind of the head brewer down there. He's this guy who who is actually in the brewery and doing that stuff. So he's uh, a bonus in part two. So yeah. Hear Jeff talk too. So two super cool guys, and we'll get to that uh, material soon. Um, before we do, of course. Uh, as always, it's time to uh, talk about the, the beery news of the world. <laughs> so, Jeff, uh, what's going on in the beer world? Man, you didn't do the music cue. I don't yeah. even know what to do. <laughs> you know what? And by music cue, I mean you making funny little if we, had, if we had a real, If we had a real producer, we could actually find a little music interlude. Okay, I'm going to find know. a musical interlude for the next one. I think we should do that. Cause then or maybe actually I'll jam one in here. <laughs> <laughs> well then it'll make the whole thing confusing <laughs> okay. but hey that would be perfect for us right yeah all right uh okay well let's talk about um some numbers that came out from the beer institute which is a national trade association and it predates the uh brewers association it sort of represents all all breweries um the brewers association is one we mostly talk about because they're the craft brewer guys but anyway yeah. uh beer institute had a their year-end uh, wrap up of what 2016 looked like 
and they had a few numbers out that were kind of interesting. Um, beer was actually up uh, 0.3%, which is which is good. Um, beer has been in a kind of a, a steady descent uh, mm-hmm. for for uh, I think a couple of decades actually. Yeah. Um, but there were of course winners and losers. Um, Imports were up 6.8%, um, which was uh, a little bit over 2 million barrels. Uh, and craft was up 7%. And here I don't know what their definition of craft is. They didn't, right. they didn't say what that is. Okay. But it's almost for surely different than the Brewers Associations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, that means that somebody had to be down. Um, and that was domestic, with the, what they call domestic, which is non-craft. That's everything else. Right. And um, they were down one4 million barrels uh or 0.8 percent which you know given how fast they've been falling they've been that's falling right like two or three percent that's i think they've slowed their descent yeah right? that's interesting actually yeah um we might be starting to see the bottom of who knows right so the 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 macro is slowing their descent and the micros are slowing their ascent mm-hmm. maybe yeah. we're going to reach some kind of steady state as economists would say ah. <clears throat> uh imports up that dramatically is interesting. I, that's unexpected. Is that is that a trend that's been going on for a while? Or? It is, and it's mostly driven by Mexican beers. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that wasn't what I had in my mind. <laughs> nope, it's not Chimay. It's, uh, it's Tecate. <laughs> a lot of Modelo and Tecate. And, yeah. I see. Okay. Uh, I got it. So, yeah, that's interesting. I wonder um, uh, I wonder how the trends will, will level out where the steady state is. Um, I still think there's a lot more growth in craft beer to come. So. I do, too. I think this is a you know, a pause and we'll probably see the, when you look at any kind of trend line, it's not a straight line. It's, it's, it's jiggy and jaggy. And yeah. Although I do think that we're, we might be done with the Bafo growth. I bet craft that's beer. true. Yeah. yeah. Like sing, high single digit growth seems, seems like uh, a reasonable thing to expect over the next five to 10 years. I, think. I would consider that Bafo growth to growth too. I mean, that's still by any other standard, pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah. But I know what you mean. Yeah. Not 20%. Yeah. I mean, it's great growth, yeah. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> the, the kind of growth we've seen before is um, uh, maybe a thing of the past. Uh, and the next news item actually is sort of a uh, interesting dovetail. Yeah. Um, you found uh, an article in the Lambert Week, which is the local weekly newspaper here, about uh, Bridgeport. Yeah. Somebody had pointed out uh, they they dug around and they they were looking at uh the amount of beer bridgeport sells locally which is tracked by the oregon liquor control commission mm-hmm. uh and in 2013 they sold uh nearly 24,000 barrels of beer in in mm-hmm. oregon and in 2016 they sold just over 12,000 barrels so they have nearly half almost their production. half so how much do they sell out of state do you know i don't know i think they're you know i mean they're they're definitely a regional company at, at best and i bet you know the majority of their sales are, are local yeah so. you so why don't you give a little quick for those who don't know a little quick overview of what bridgeport is and represents to our local beer scene bridgeport is the oldest extant brewery in in uh oregon it's actually the second craft brewery the first one died um and it was one of the big success stories and grew to something i think like fifty thousand barrels uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Really? Yeah. Wow. It, 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 it had, it was, you know, it was, it was one of the big success stories of the, the early and 
I, I don't know. Yeah, not so sure how to divide those out. But by by the you know by by the year two thousand, they were selling a lot of beer. So so we're talking about their current production as about a quarter of what they were at their peak. Well, yeah, if we can extrapolate. That's right. Let's assume that there are some out of out of state sales. Yeah. I don't know how much that would get you up, but yeah, they're they're down big, yeah. bigly. Yeah. So uh, the other thing about Bridgeport is that they were bought out by the Gambrinus company. Right. Uh, when when was that? Uh, Ninety five, I think, something like that. Okay. And Gambrinus really didn't do very much uh, to change the company uh, until about a decade later, and that's. Locals will remember that's when they changed the uh, the pub from kind of a groovy pizza place to a yuppie place in the Pearl, and yeah, and the so, product started to change. And so the original pub was in this old brick warehouse, ancient building, wonderful space that they had created in there, kind of cozy furniture and little nooks and crannies. Um, but the area it was in, which is the old sort of warehouse district in Portland, became kind of uh, a spot for gentrification is actually right around right near the uh, old Henry Weinhardt's brewery. So um, that was the big regional brewery that we had um, when that closed and that was redeveloped, that sort of started or went hand in hand with a bunch of redevelopment in the neighborhood. So I think that someone again, <laughs> decided that it was time to sort of change the, the um, aesthetic of the pub to match the new sort of fancy district. It was becoming uh, or that was growing around it. So um, to the to to us old guys that that felt very incongruous. It was not the same pub we were used to. Well, and I think that points to something we we were trying to figure out as we were, we were talking about the podcast before going live. Uh, that this seems like a cautionary tale of something, but and I had written down a cautionary tale about the dangers of tightening mature markets. But you pointed out something else that I think might be more relevant here. Well, yeah. So Gambrinus is a importer. Exactly. Originally, they were an importer. Original yeah. importer. Uh, um, they now also own Shiner, uh, uh, Shiner Bach, right. um, and uh, Trumer, and okay. Bridgeport, and right. maybe others. I don't know, but yeah. those for sure. And they, I think they do still import Corona, maybe. maybe yeah, not, and the know. Shiner uh, points to their um, their location, which is uh, in San Antonio, Texas. Right. Um, and so what I was discussing before we were potting is um, that... A lot of the decision making, uh, it appears, is still is made from the San Antonio corporate offices, um, and uh, that might be a uh, evidence of why it's important to stay close to your local market and and uh, keep decisions local, which appears, at least from from the outside, to be what AB InBev's new strategy is with its sort of uh, galaxy of little breweries. They seem to mostly let the breweries continue to operate independently and to make their decisions locally. Right. If you walk into Ten Barrel or, uh, well, Ten Barrel anyway. Mm -hmm. I I haven't been to Elysian recently enough to know. But if you walk into Ten Barrel, it seems very local. They have all the, they they make their regular beers, but, you know, they have a bunch of other beers and they have funky names. And the brewer, uh, like it'll reference one of the brewers and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's not like that at Bridgeport. When you walk in, um, they basically don't even have any special beers. It's just the regular beers that's on tap at Bridgeport. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I think I think also the desire to make it upscale was probably not necessarily in concert with the way most people drink beer, even at brew pubs in town. So right. I'm not sure that that was necessarily a good call. It wasn't really a Portland ethos they brought in. It was a different, yeah, a different corporate ethos from a different culture, perhaps. Um, 
So, and interestingly, we'll, we will encounter uh, Gambrinus and particularly the owner. Or yes, say, Carlos Alvarez. Carl, that's right, Carl, reference. Carlos Alvarez, the owner of Gambrinus, he's actually been uh, quite a generous benefactor to the Oregon State University Fermentation Science Program. That's right. He, Tom told us he gave $100,000 to the program. Uh, and I can't remember if he told us that while we were recording or not. So we'll mention uh, that. He told us that while... That's true. While we were doing the tour of the brewery, okay, um, and I don't sure we were, but but what it's going to pay for is a brand new brewery. Yeah, um, uh, I guess a brand new custom built brewery that they're going to put in much bigger than the one they have, and the one they have they're going to move over to another side. This tells you how big the place is. They're going to move to another side of the big room, um, so they'll have both breweries running. Yeah, so it's pretty cool. Yeah, so that's uh, definitely a cool thing, and also uh, very cool that he's doing that here locally in, in Oregon. So. Yeah, yeah, and apparently the apparently Bridgeport has uh, contracted, oops, contracted with the fermentation science program to do some some testing the beer to help a little bit of um, product development in a particular line they did, and so uh, it's yeah. interesting. It was yeah. interesting to encounter those 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 tendrils. Yeah, I think these kinds of stories are the texture behind the big uh, numbers that we see, and you see winners and losers. I do think the tightening beer market also makes it harder because you've got. 100 breweries in portland and in the surrounding areas and yeah. bridgeport it's just harder to sell beer when there's so many con- so much competition yeah and we've talked about sort of bre- older breweries breweries that have expanded to a to a certain scale they kind of have a hard time keeping up the buzz and um competing with all the newest latest stuff that's out there uh something that um we do actually talk to tom about i can't remember it's the first part or the second part but this sort of um uh chase for something new um that's going on in the craft beer so the 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 pace of just change in terms of beer styles and uh and recipes and brewing habits is is dizzying these days and so what people are looking for is something new newest latest rather than sort of uh, a tried and true consistent right (laughs) product so and and it's interesting because it affects what what they do at that at that program um which i suppose is a reasonable introduction to to switch now and um take ourselves down to corvallis which is about uh uh, 80 miles south of portland um and uh, talk to tom all right let's do it okay we will join uh we will come back here after the interview and uh pick up the pod where we normally do all right so uh here is tom uh with jeff and i in his office in corvallis all right, well, we're back with Tom Shellhammer here in his office uh, at the uh, University of uh, uh, Oregon State University campus. Um, Tom? That was close. Yeah, yeah. that was close. <laughs> <laughs> I, you, when we introduced this, uh, I mentioned uh, what, who Patrick is, and for a while I kept saying Portland State University, which was really bad. So that's Oregon State Oregon University. Oregon State University, yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. to be confused with. Yeah, and lovely Corvallis at yes. Oregon State. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're here uh, with Patrick and myself. Uh, so we're going to um, introduce Tom and have him tell us just a little bit about uh, w- what he does here and w- what the what the labs do and um, you know what what goes on here. Yeah, exactly. So I'm a professor in the Department of Food Science and Technology, and I lead the brewing research, teaching, and outreach efforts here. And I've been here since 2001. Um, all of the students at OSU get a degree in food science. Um, but within food science, we have a fermentation science option, and that's where the brewing students are, are sitting. 
And that option has grown tremendously over the last 20 years. The program, the fermentation science program got started roughly 20 years ago in 96. Mm -hmm. And um, the food science department got started in 1918. So we're coming in on a 100th anniversary. So we're one of the oldest, either the oldest or second oldest food science program in the nation. And fermentation science in our history is relatively new. But when you look around the nation, um, we're one of the, the leaders in terms of brewing education. Davis was there ahead of us back starting in the 50s, mm -hmm. and we started in the 90s. Um, I was hired here in 2001, and um, I teach students about beer and brewing. I do research on beer and brewing. A lot of the research has a hop connection, and there's kind of makes sense because of the historical hop connection that OSU has. Which the, is? The USDA Hop Breeding Program. Yeah. So the 1930s, the USDA plopped a breeding program here um, because of disease pressures. And at the time, um, Oregon was the largest hop growing region in the world, uh -huh. which is kind of interesting and ironic because it was right in the middle of prohibition. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but um, we had, um, well, let me get this wrong, probably um, downy mildew um, come through and basically wipe out the Oregon crop. And uh -huh. the USDA came in and said, it was set up a research station here to look for new germplasm that's disease resistant. Uh -huh. And um, and that was the kind of the beginning of the hop breeding efforts here. And now you, you fast forward almost 100 years, but 70 plus years. And varieties that have come out of that effort to create more disease resistant hops are things like Willamette, um, Mount Hood, Cascade. So, you know, Willamette and Cascade are two biggies. Right. So. Cascade is kind of the, the mother of all American hops. Of American hop, exactly. It is yeah. the icon of, of, <laughs> yeah. of American hops. And it was, it's cool that it was developed here at OSU. So okay. when I came to OSU, I was like, okay, what kind of stuff am I going to work on? This draw to hops was sort of like, it was there laid out for me. The Hop Reachers Council has had been in existence for 20 or more years. And uh, they fund research on hop agronomics, hop breathing hop disease and some hop quality. So that's kind of where I got a, got my start. And this is funded by uh, brewers, is that right, the Hop Research Council? Yeah, so Council? we think with the Hop Research Council, it's an organization that's made up of uh, representatives from the three Oregon um, hop, I mean, the three U.S. hop growing states, uh -huh. the commissions of Oregon Hop Commission, Idaho Hop Commission, and Washington Hop Commission. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the farmers putting money towards this. Um, the major hop companies that buy, process, and sell hops, so like John and Haas, Steiner, Yakima Chief Hop Demon, um, are members of this as well. And then the brewers who use hops, which when you go back to when the Hop Research Council started in the 70s, were breweries you know, like Anheuser-Busch, Miller, Strohs, those folks. Through the consolidation of that, the big guys that are left at the table are Anheuser-Busch, InBev, and Miller Coors. Um, <laughs> And what we've seen, particularly in the last, say, seven years, is a huge growth in the number of craft breweries that are now at the table. And so these, and we're talking like Stone, um, well, Sierra Nevada had been there for quite a number of years, 10, 15 years, and then recently we've had New Belgium, Stone, um, CBA, I mean, you can, you can kind of guess, the, the right. bigger, more mature craft brewers right. are now at the table. And for them, the cost to entry is pretty low. I don't know what it is, but it's relatively low. Once you're a big brewer, then you pay based upon how much beer you make. So in a, in a nutshell, we've got these three different pools of money. So everybody's sort of leveraging their financial resources to then fund mm, 
12 or so projects a year on pests, looking at, mm-hmm. at using different um, means to control pests like um, environmental controls or predatory insects, um, fungal disease resistance, um, breeding for, for new varieties, um, and then in my case, hop quality. So we do work on hop bitterness, right now we're doing work on hop aroma. Yeah, and so uh, you're doing some really cool work. I think uh, the folks that listen to our podcast are really interested in uh, craft beer, and, and most people are interested in craft beer, interested yep. in IPAs. Right, exactly. So mm-hmm. uh, hops is kind of where it's all at now. So exactly. The, the IPA is a beer that is, that, you know, hops sort of define that, that beer. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the projects we've got going on right now, when you, when you guys came and you met Scott, who is one of the students working on, currently working on HRC project, this project is sort of poking at the concept of does hop oil, total hop oil content, drive hop aroma intensity in dry hop beers. I think people intuitively think that it, it's got a, the more oil a hop has, the more aroma it has. Right. And so we're testing that with Cascade and Centennial and Chinook. The past few years we've looked at Cascades with 30 different selections of Cascade grown in Oregon, Washington. Um, this year we got some from Idaho. And uh, they're picked on different farms. They're picked at different times. They have a broad range of oil contents. Hmm. So same variety, but we have these sort of overlapping factors of like where it's been grown, how it's been processed, when it's been picked. And we're sort of interested in that, but initially we're not. We're just interested in, let's look at hop oil. So it's mm-hmm. cascade from low oil to hot oil. And if we like sort them all out based upon oil content, and then we take these hops and we dry hop and unhop the beer with them, all at the same level, same beer, and then we evaluate sensorily the aroma intensity of them. Does that aroma intensity line up with the oil content? And it doesn't. <laughs> no, it doesn't. For two years in a row, it doesn't. There's actually the first year there was like a correlation of 0.01, which is basically zero correlation. Right. And last year it was like 0.1 or so. So basically no correlation. So it's almost nothing to do with the oil. No, it's like a total oil. So, so it's so it's something. I mean, if, if there's no hops and no oil, there's no flavor. Oh, sure. But there's it's what's in the oil. Yeah, so that's okay. what we're trying to do. Is we're trying to deconstruct the oil and find out what are the 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 things that are important. And it's not unlike the hop acids. So if we think back like a hundred years, and people are looking at what makes hop bitter. Okay, it's these hop acids. And before we really knew what was in the hop acids, we might just look at the total resin content, like all the mm. the goo. Right. And if you were to correlate goo content <laughs> with bitterness, you would have a weak correlation right. because the goo is not all bitter substances. Right. And so it's, it's a similar kind of analogy. So uh-huh. uh, there, are, like mercine is a big component to hop oil. It doesn't seem like it's necessarily a big driver of hop aroma intensity, at least in dry hop beers. So are you finding any, you've done all this research, you've done all these variables, uh, what do you? What are the what are the the the, the things that taste that, that give the good aromas? Yeah, so th- we're still trying to figure that out. So <laughs> it's it, it's a little bit like um, the more you look, the more you realize you don't know right. kind of thing. Right. So and and there's some um, without getting too geeky, there's some like statistical constraints. So what we're trying to do is build a like a predictive model. Sure get a bunch of these inputs, and these inputs are hop oil components, and the output is hop aroma intensity. 
And from a statistical perspective, like if we had two inputs, or if we had one input and one output, like total oil content and, and aroma intensity, that's a simple linear regression. And, and we're finding that that regression is like zero. Like there's, there's no correlation, <laughs> that's a yeah. flat line. Um, and so as we put more and more predictors, like myrcene, humulene, caryophthalm, linalool, whatever, all these different hot oil components, and we try to use a multiple linear regression or other advanced statistical tools to try to predict the output aroma intensity with these inputs, we run into this problem that we start, in some cases, getting m not more inputs than, than, than variables, but close to it. So mm -hmm. we are, we're looking at so many different um, components, not so many, 45 or so. Wow. Okay, it's a, it's, it's a, a, a sizable amount. So it's 45 yeah. different hot oil components that we're trying to, to tease out. Well, in the first year, we had only 30 hop um, samples to look at. Right. So we actually had less hop oil samples <laughs> than we had predictive variables. So statistically, it doesn't work. So that's the, the unidentified thing. econ students, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so that's what we're, we're in this statistical dilemma of like, the statisticians say, well, for every one of those predictive variables, we should have five to 10 observations in order to get enough statistical power about the noise and mm -hmm. mercy the noise and humiliating the noise. I get. That. I love statistics. I understand that, but we're in this like logistical constraint. We can't. Right. We can't um, get. If we have forty um, uh, attributes we're looking for, times ten, that's four hundred different cascade samples that we'd have to dry hop, and we that would crush us right. in terms of <laughs> trying to do it. So we're we're in this this like middle spot where we have a bunch of data. We're trying to to take the predictor data set and cull it. Like what? What do we know is really not important? Can uh -huh. we get that? If we can get that predictor data set down to like, let's say ten. Yeah. Now we're in a boat where between these two years we've got sixty or seventy different um, observations, and if we had ten predictor variables, mm -hmm. then it becomes mathematically more powerful. Or you get you get more confidence. Right. So, so um, we're not quite there yet. It's sort of like uh, it's like a tease, right? Uh -huh. uh, we're, we know it doesn't correlate, but you know what is correlating? Uh, we're sort of there. Yeah. Within that study, we have looked at some individual farms, and just because of the of the nature of how the samples came together, in some cases farms would just send us, "Hey, here's a sample hops." Or we had this one farm that could see kind of where we're trying to go, and they said, "Oh, we'll send you samples of hops." picked from the same part of the field. We'll just selectively pick parts of this field over the entire harvest window that they would normally pick. Oh, interesting. And so that's a more design study. Uh -huh. And so we can then drill in on that one farm. Right. Because everything's really controlled there. We don't have different locations. We don't have different drying conditions. We don't have different picking machinery. We have this, everything's the same. And in that case, we get a little bit of clarity uh, in, in, in what's going on. But challenge there is that then we only have one farm and you know seven time points yeah so it makes for fun science and it's fun like I love drinking beer I love tasting beer love smelling beer I love science love statistics so it's a nice mashup of all that but it's we're not at the like the this is this is it yeah. am I right that um, as hops mature uh, the oil content continues to increase yeah is that so you know, so total oil content continues to increase, but does mercine do like mercine and uh, linalool increase at the same rate? Yeah, yeah, they don't. No, so, so, so this is another challenge. It's another right? challenge, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so we had a student a few years back looking at hop harvest maturity, 
and certainly, as you, as you point out, as you leave hops in the vine, the hop oil content goes up. And if hop oil, if hop aroma intensity were correlating with total hop oil content, then it's a pretty simple thing. It's just basically pick as late as possible, right, and get as much oil into the to the hops. And mm -hmm. that's not necessarily the case as we're seeing. Mm -hmm. um, but the oil content, it's not like everything fills the same amount. Um, nothing really goes down, but some things fill faster than others. And it's, it's, we're not at a point where you can overly generalize and say, well, Mersing just goes up big and the other ones kind of go up low. Right. Um, but, but those, these time points that we talked about and, and from this, this first study we, we were discussing, some of the variances in oil are a result of when they were picked. Right? Some are from just different locations. We know that like a farm in Washington and a farm in Oregon, if you look at the average oil content across the entire harvest window for these two farms will be different uh -huh. because of where they're grown yeah. and how they're managed as When well. you're talking about Cascade. In yeah, so, like, so if you have a farmer in Washington growing Cascade and a farmer in Oregon growing Cascade, same season, they may not pick in the exact same window because Oregon tends to be cooler than Washington, so right. there's some different things and it depends upon when the farmer trains the hops, that mm -hmm. kind of sort of sets in motion yeah. when maturity will, will ripening will come about. But anyway, if you were to look at the harvest window for farmer A and harvest window for farmer B, they wouldn't, for a given year, they would not give you an average um, hop oil content that's identical. Mm -hmm. They'd be different, just like, you know, it's, it's sort of like the terroir thing. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, yeah. if you buy grapes from Pinot Noir from Oregon, you know, in the Winnet Valley, or from the Canaris region in, you know, north of San Francisco, they're different grapes. Yeah, Patrick and I, uh, as home brewers, have discovered that saws hops grown in the United States taste less like Czech saws than um, Sterling, and so we when, when we we use American grown Sterling to, for, for your saws like flavor. Yeah, 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 yeah totally. Yeah, so, the terroir is so yep, weird. Exactly. So if you grow a a hop, if a hop has been bred for or selected in a particular region, you right. try to move that around the world. It doesn't produce the same hop. It's not a completely different hop, but it's not like you're going to turn a Hollertau into a Citra just by planting it. Instead of planting it in Bavaria, you plant it in like Idaho or New Mexico, <laughs> right. right? And all of a sudden you've got this magical new hop. <laughs> it's not that, that simple or that different. But if you try to grow a Hollertau in other parts of the world, in some cases it doesn't grow well because that's a, a land-raised variety that was adapted for that region. In the case with Citra, okay, it's been bred to grow in the Northwest. It was bred by breeders in uh, the Yakima Valley, and so it does well. It doesn't mean it can't grow elsewhere, like Cascade grows elsewhere. In fact, the new varieties that are being bred in Germany are being bred onto Cascade, mm -hmm. American Cascade. Interesting. So like the Mandarin and Bavaria and Polaris, these have Cascade pedigree, so American pedigree into a German um, pedigree, which is interesting. But the point is that um, those varieties may not transplant um, well. Right. And so like you're finding like when you, American Sats is really like, it's not giving you what you want when you're thinking about making a Czech style Pilsner or that kind of Central European Bohemian Pils. We say American, but now there are people growing hops in Michigan and back in New York again, mm -hmm. and um, they're trying to even grow them in the South. So they don't get great yield, but they're still growing them yeah. there. Yeah. Uh -huh. So I don't know if you're working with those people, but this could create a whole another 
a dimension of, of hoppiness. So, you know. Uh, yeah, so the, when, I, when I mean American, I'm, I'm really talking about like American pedigree or genetics. Right. So right. The, when you look at the, 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 the genes and how they're expressed in American varieties, like like Cluster is kind of one of the original ones, but, but Cascade and Willamette, those are different than what you'd find in the classic European land races, so the Sots yeah. um, and um, Hohetau, Little Fru, um, Spalt, these, these varieties that were not necessarily bred, they were just selected, they were wild hops growing, and so right. someone way back in the day brewed some beer with them and said, these are pretty good. Yeah. Um, when you look at the, those two gene sets, they, they have different disease resistance patterns or packages, mm -hmm. um, they produce um, different flavors, so that they're all hoppy, but if you look at a wild American hop against a wild German hop, they have very different flavors. That caddy, um, grapefruity, citrus quality is something you don't find in European varieties. It's something that you find in American varieties. And it's kind of either like it or hate it. Like the Germans historically ha hated that. <laughs> you know, they're like, maybe that's because they drank beer that was only made with this Germanic hops. Right. But uh, I remember a, a fairly well-known hop that was more like a flavor chemist. I was at a brewing meeting once, and he was he was stuck his nose in Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. He's like, ah, oh, I love the smell of your American beers, but I just can't bring myself to drink them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we were talking earlier. That's So one thing we always talk about is oils and linalool and all right. these things. Yeah. But there's this thing called a thiol, which right. you, you talked about. Which yeah, is when this, we were walking around, we, we smelled one of the thiols. So... The thiols is a is a what's a, a class of chemical compounds that have sulfur in them. So that the sulfur part is what makes the compound a thiol. Not that all sulfur compounds are thiols, but a thiol is a has sulfur in it. Okay. That's the key component to that. Myrcene and linalool don't have any sulfur in them. Myrcene is a is a hydrocarbon, so it would be like. Hard to think of offhand another hydrocarbon, but anyway, it's, it's a straight chain, long kind of no, not straight chain. Not even thinking of like fats here, but this is called a hydrocarbon. It's very um, hydrophobic. It's very volatile. Um, no sulfur, so it's just carbon, hydrogen, oxygen. Um, the linalool is an oxygenated version of that, mm -hmm. so it's got. Um, an oxygen component in it that does things to its functionality in terms of how its solubility. Mm -hmm. It also changes it in terms of its flavor profile. So the, the, the hydrocarbons as a class tend to be more um, woodsy, uh -huh. uh, particularly as they oxidize. Okay, it's more oxidation, but but they're, they're woodsy, um, herbal, and somewhat floral. The oxygenated versions of these things, like linalool and geraniol tend to be floral and fruity, mm -hmm. not this woodsy herbal. <clears throat> and then we move to this thiol class, right? So the hydrocarbons make up, let's say, 75 to 90% of the hop oil. Okay. The oxygenated fraction makes up almost the rest. Uh -huh. And then less than 1% are these sulfur compounds, tiny, tiny amount. But the thing about them that makes them so important, if they're there, is that the aroma detection thresholds of these are like three to four, maybe five orders of magnitude lower uh -huh. than these other compounds. So like myrcene, you need about 
300 to 500 parts per billion. It sounds like a small amount, but not quite a part per million. Okay. And the um, thiols, the aroma thresholds are parts per trillion. Wow. Right. So you go parts per million down to parts per billion down to parts per trillion by factors of three. So a little goes a long way. (laughs) (laughs) And so the thiol compounds, they can be stinky like onion garlicky, Mm -hmm. but they can also be potent, tropical, um, fruity, citrusy, but also animally stinky. Um, so I am really sensitive to the, a lot of hops that to me taste, there's some taste, uh, Nelson Sauvin tastes like human sweat. Yep. Uh, many of them have the onion, garlic. Sweaty, uh, um, yeah, sweaty B.O. is a really common descriptor we use for some of these, these thial-driven hops. One of, um, uh, mosaic, everybody mm-hmm. loves mosaic, but to me it tastes really savory, like mm-hmm. almost like caraway seed or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's also a thial. Am I just super sensitive to thials? Is that what that is? I bring up a really interesting point. So people's sensitivity, and these, these numbers you're talking about, these threshold numbers, they're, those are like averages. So right. they're, they're, there's a pretty broad range. And in fact, the, if we were to look at the, the differences in our individual aroma thresholds mm-hmm. among the three of us to one compound, that difference is probably larger amongst us than it is between different compounds. So like we've talked about, let's mm-hmm. say, linalool and geraniol. And so those two compounds... Um, they have different sensory thresholds, but the difference between those two as an average is smaller than the difference between, between the that, three of us yeah. that make up that. So when we look at a population of people and, and we, we start measuring sensory thresholds, we might span three orders of magnitude just on the population. So if the average is, let's say, 300 ppb, there are people that can't smell it until you get to 300 ppm. And there are some <laughs> people that can smell it down to like 3 ppb. Wow. Right, so you got this distribution of, of ranges, and so you may be someone who is very sensitive to some of the compounds, like these thiol compounds, uh, and for you, they're in, intensely um, aromatic. So he might be really sensitive to thiol, but less sensitive to one, right. another exactly. one, and I might be really sensitive to another one and less sensitive to thiol. Thiols. Because our, our classic, I know our classic, <laughs> our classic one is sriracha ace hops, uh-huh. which to me tastes just. Straight dill. Dill, right. Dill. It's, I hate it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I get the lemon. lemon. That's just crazy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So some of that could be due to threshold. Some of it could be due to just how we perceive aroma. Uh-huh. Like the, the physiology, not like how we think about it. But like it's kind of like the when we look at the sky, is yeah, is it really blue right. Right, to all of us? I mean, it, it's we call it blue, but right. the blue you see is different. Or is it maybe different than the blue you see? I'm so colorblind, so it's like definitely it's a, different. Okay, yeah, but, so, but in this <laughs> case, you know, blue dress, gold so I think the, the Sriracha right. Ace example, is a, that's yeah. a classic one, because yeah, it is, it's like, yeah. it can be lemony, fruity, but it can also be really dilly. So I have a question about what the industry, I imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my impression is that like the 1970s hot research was all about just getting consistency, making sure uh, everything tastes the same every single time, and, and we can grow a lot of it fast. Mm-hmm. And now it seems like what people want is just New flavors, new flavors, new flavors, new aromas, new characteristics. Yeah. So I, I would say there's a little bit of both. So the the interest right now, um, there's definitely interest on new flavors. Mm-hmm. But that's and and the the advent of craft brewing or maybe the awakening of the possibility of different flavors right. in the consumer has created 
both a blessing and a curse, mm-hmm. right? So the blessing is like, wow, there's we can move in all these other spaces other than in, at least in America was you know American light lager, right. uh, which is great. The challenge now is that the consumer has realized there's so many you know new things that they've become almost like um, I don't know immature in their in their their approach to beers and, and preferences it's just like give me something new every and time it creates yeah. this challenge for yeah. brewers of like <laughs> just churning out one-offs like hoping not even hoping something sticks I think it's like always looking for something new which yep. is like you know it's almost we're getting to an overload in right. that regard but there's also the there's a continued interest in consistency so yeah. so let's say you're making you know, pick your favorite beer what is what is your favorite well, I, I say, what's the your favorite? I don't have one favorite beer, but yeah. pick, pick a, in your your whatever your portfolio of beers that you drink right now. A hoppy beer? Yeah, pick a hoppy beer. Uh, I, do you have a hoppy beer? I can't think of a hoppy beer offhand. I'll, I'll pick one. I'll pick one. Okay, so so right now, like Barley Brown's beers, are, I, I'm I'm kind of grooving on them. So okay. And so uh, in part because I think they make great beers, but also some of our students work there. They've uh-huh. worked in my lab, so I've got this personal connection to them. So. It's yeah. actually a really good craft beer story because I like their beer, but I can also connect to them personally. Mm-hmm. So, take a pallet jack. Yeah. So, pallet um, jack for the folks out there is a, a really famous IPA here in Oregon, and um, it's a it's a it's a like a six and a half percent. It's not a super intense beer in terms of alcohol, no. But yeah. it's very, it's very hop forward. Very hop it's, forward. But balanced. It's not a total. It's not going to just drag you down with bitterness. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a delicious beer to drink. Yeah. But it's you have to be ready for you know for a hot fruit salad. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, me as a consumer, I want when I order pallet jack, I, that's what I want now. I, it's like I'm right. like when I order, I'm hoping that that's what I'm getting, yeah. and not a different version of pallet jack right. because of yeah. either inconsistency in hop supply, or because of inconsistency in hop flavor as it changes. And that's mm-hmm. a, another area that the lab is kind of moving into is like. The, the dynamic nature of hop flavor. The, that if you're a home brewer, you would witness this, and if you're a prof- professional brewer, you witness this. That we we make a, a really hoppy beer that we call um, Slice. It's short for Slice of Heaven, but its predecessor name was Peaches and Armpits. <laughs> <laughs> the first time we made it, we we, we smelled it. it was like a it's kind of like a double IPA, so it's uh-huh. big. It's big alcohol. It's like eight, it's seven and a half to eight percent. And it's hopped from, like, the moment we add water to grist all the way through to dry hopping, right? You know, it's like hops in everywhere. And so it's this big, juicy, but also sticky, you know, yeah. hop bomb. And the first time we made it, we, we were like, okay, it's just kind of an exciting double IP. We taste it, and we're like, oh, this is awful. <laughs> it smelled like sweat. Yeah. Total armpit. It was like, oh, so stinky. But, but I also had this intensely... Stone free, this peachy quality to it, which we're like, this is kind of cool if you can get past the stink on it. <laughs> but we didn't, we weren't like, oh, this is great. Well, then, like six weeks later, we came back to it and it had completely changed. Yeah, it, was, it hadn't been packaged, it was in kegs, it wasn't like an oxidation thing. But right. the dynamic nature of that, yeah. and that's when we taste it, and someone's like, wow, this is like a slice of heaven. And so then we just called it Slice. And, and so it's like a beer that almost needs to age a little bit. Uh-huh. I think most beers like this that the consumer see doesn't see it that raw because mm-hmm. there is a time element between the time when the beer is made and when it actually gets served to the consumer yeah. unless you're at the brewery. Um, but still, that change then continues to occur. And in some cases, the change is 
positive, like in this case, because that sweaty quality disappeared. This this is kind of a thiol different thing. Those thiol compounds are fairly reactive. Yeah, but there's other instances where the flavor might actually you know deteriorate instead of being a you know this was like a positive elimination of a stink and in some cases there's like an evolution of something good but then there can also be a decay of like bright hop aroma yeah. right and so that's an area that from a quality perspective that brewers yes. are chasing the big guys now are now have become interested in that because the big guys have bought some of the small guys and as they yeah. take small brands and make them big brands they want, like, they want consistency. Yeah. I mean, every brewery, I think, wants consistency, ultimately. Although, we talked about the fickle nature of the consumer. The consumer wants something new, and so... You keep bringing new stuff every time. Right, right? Exactly. <laughs> you, you don't have to worry about consistency, yeah. right? Because it's not like it's going to be different next time anyway. Yeah. But once you land on a product that people want, and we use the pallet jack example for me, like, okay, when I buy a pallet jack, I'm not wanting just a one-off from Brother Brown's. What I'm buying is pallet jack, and I want pallet jack. And right. so it's, mm -hmm. it's that... Achieving that consistency becomes a, a challenge. And there's there's brewery, beer uh, like Goose Island Goose IPA is a beer that is trying to be there. You know, Anheuser Busch is looking for a way to scale this and be, make this be a national IPA. So they're going to have this oh, challenge. National, international. Yeah, international. So it's going to sit in, in their portfolio of global brands. They've got Budweiser. They've got Stella. Right. Hogarden, although Hogarden has been kind of declining a little bit, and Goose will, will be in that, <laughs> which is interesting. They think yeah. about getting on it on like an airplane and flying to you know, Shanghai and going in a bar and there's like goose. Right. Like, what? So that's kind of the vision they have is, is taking IPA and moving it into the same realm as pale lager. Light lager. Which and they pale have lager is like the, 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 as a category, is the number one selling beer in the world by, sure. like, by orders of magnitude. Right. So it's, it's, it's kind of cool though to think that craft beer has evolved despite the I think the consternations that some people in the craft food community have about that, it sort of shows that craft beer is, has arrived at like a global um, level. Right. I mean, it's not just a beer for craft beer lovers, but a style of beer that could transcend. As long as it doesn't, the flavor doesn't drop off like a stone after right, 45 exactly. minutes. <laughs> I know, exactly, yeah, yeah. Or, or turn into peaches and armpits, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of, should we taste some beer? We should, I think so. This has been right. a fun discussion, but what? we need to stop and have a, have a beer. Let's let's pause the tape. We'll reconvene in the brewery. Yeah. All right. All right, and as we said, that brewery part will be part B of this podcast that we'll do separately. So uh, that was Tom in his office. Excellent. Here we are back at uh, the main pod. Um, so I hope you enjoyed that. And uh, it, it is unfortunate that we couldn't do the whole thing at once, but we do think it'll be nicer for you to hear the whole conversation we had. Yeah, and there are two, two separate conversations. One that was more about his research, and then the second part is about the active stuff they're doing down in the brewery and, and beer. <laughs> it, it's true. And to tease that, just so you don't think that's like a subsidiary... Uh, b-roll uh <laughs> we get into things like uh i think is is that where we get into the thiols or uh we already talked about thiols oh we talked about thiols uh we do i know get into uh biotransformation in new england style ipas <laughs> a few other interesting things so definitely you want to stick around for that yeah okay so uh next up is mailbag server which which order do we do this in normally mailbag yeah let's do mailbag all first. right Okay, so uh, 
the one the one uh, thing we have in mailbag is a is a tweet I got a message through uh, Twitter from my uh, Beeronomics uh, Twitter feed uh, from friend of the pod Josh Laner. He asked we were talking about um, New England IPAs and the uh, and sort of the craze. Um, and why they don't, don't make a whole bunch more if there's all these people who want them. And he asked, how much of this is a phase? Uh, clearly, saturation point is far away in New England. What do you think, Jeff? Yeah, so we, we had to, with tweets, you don't get a ton of information, so we were trying to figure out, suss out what, what that, that second thing meant. Uh, and we kind of fell down on the point of um, what happens when, when people are tired of uh, this kind of style or when this if this is a fad and it moves on through mm-hmm. um so i'll confess that my view uh is that new england ipas are cloudier versions of every other ipa that you find in america when i next now been 18 months ago but when i did the beer bible tour i had the the really nice opportunity to drink beer all over the the country mm-hmm. and see what different people were drinking and what they were drinking was the same thing they were drinking very hoppy saturated ipas um they were not all very cloudy but um in terms of flavor they were very much the same and so my guess is uh <sighs> two-part guess first mm-hmm. guess is uh ipas are going nowhere and these yes. kinds of flavors are they are the american style they are what uh, americans like yep the I think that the uh, there's a lot of confusion about what the cloudiness provides, mm-hmm. uh, which is just a muddy appearance, and it doesn't actually affect the juiciness of the uh, the flavor. Had a slight uh, hiccup there. Sorry about that. Uh, anyway, I think that the notion uh, that people are always going to want a really muddy appearance um, is uh, I, I do think that will probably change. I think. Um, going back to a more natural, slightly hazy uh, appearance will be more common. So I'm not too worried uh, one way or another about how that muddiness comes up. But I do think that there's some some confusion about what the muddiness actually contributes to the beer, which is just the appearance, much much less than the, the flavors that people really like in modern IPAs, which people are drinking all over the country. So there you go. That's my thought on that one. Right. Yeah, and what I'd add to that is that there's going to be a lot of brewers who are trying to ride the wave as well. And so many, many more uh, super hop-saturated IPAs are probably going to start showing up in the market in the Northeast. And so um, there'll be uh, plenty of extra supply to meet that demand, even if it's not from the, the, the hop brewers themselves right now. Yep. And to tie back into uh, some of the things that uh, Tom was talking about, I think people are going to be able to use... Uh, you know, new new hop varieties, new hop techniques. There mm-hmm. is a new product called lupulin powder on the market, uh, which is the I think just the the little yellow lupulin cells that somehow get out of the hop. Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody's trying to figure out new ways to to make these flavors explode even more and much more than the cloudiness. Is that that's going to be probably where things are headed? Yeah, yeah. All right. So. Uh, Last bit is the beer sherpa. We're gonna do a little bit of a change to the beer sherpa. We realize a couple of things. We don't want to. We don't want to have the beer sherpa be too, be, too, bleh, be too local. And I off. I often don't get to 
travel out and about and drink lots of beers. You're you're the real beer expert around here. So uh, my proposal was to turn the beer ship into kind of uh, uh, beers that you should try in the world if you want to uh, learn about beer and why. Um, so I put it to you, uh, Jeff Allworth. Uh, what is a good recommendation this week? This week, I'm going to go with uh, a beer called uh, Taurus Bulba mm-hmm. from the from Brasserie de la Seine in, in Belgium. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was thinking of a good beer that expresses hops characterfully, since we're talking about hops this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, you know, IPAs are everywhere. And if you have a local IPA you like, you, you already know which one to go for. Right. This is an interesting beer because it's a 4.5% Belgian beer that has quite a bit of yeast character, as, as Belgian beers do. It's bottle-conditioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Belgians have had a really hard time working with hops. Um, American craft brewing has presented a, kind of a challenge for the Belgians who want to get in on this hoppy thing. Yeah. But um, they're, the, the way they brew is to make their beers very light-bodied. And they use these enormously attenuative yeasts, which dry the beer way out. So they have a very thin body, and it's a very dry beer, which exposes hop bitterness uh, in a way that makes it much more vicious. It tastes much harsher. Yeah. Terrace Bulba uh, is this amazing beer that somehow combines the esters with uh, a kind of wildflower hopping. Uh, It's just... It's un- it's an unusual presentation. It's all hop forward. It's really wonderful, mm-hmm. um, but it's not it's not it's not a really bitter bomb. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the most flavorful beers uh, I've had. I think it's one of the most interesting beers coming out of Belgium right now. And uh, I I had to go buy a bottle for an article I wrote, and I found that they're selling it for three fifty a bottle. Down yeah. your, it's for a 12-ounce bottle, but it's still, for a Belgian beer, an imported Belgian beer, one of the best beers made in Belgium right now, I would say. Uh, it's an incredible buy. So go buy yourself. Sends uh, Taras Bulba if you have a good bottle shop in your neighborhood. Spectacular beer. I think you'll enjoy it. That sounds good. I have not had it, so I will take up, take you up on your recommendation. Yes. Maybe, maybe next time I'll give you my my thoughts. It also has one of the best labels in uh, brewing, which I'll, I'll just that's a little easter egg for you <laughs> go find yes okay well that about wraps up we actually have to get back to our beer uh speaking of hopping um so we better wrap up the pot so we can actually uh attend to the beer we're brewing um, that's right it takes a lot of effort to make mediocre beer like we do that's right <laughs> <laughs> so uh uh, be on the lookout for uh, part two of this pod we'll, where we will uh, talk to um, uh, Tom Shellhammer and Jeff Clausen in the OSU uh, brewing uh, facility, brewery. Uh, and um, until then, uh, this has been Jeff Allworth. Uh, and you can find us. Uh, sorry, Jeff Allworth of. Thank you. Yeah. The, good, good lead in. Of the Beer Vana blog. I was, I was thinking, I was leaving ahead. Beer Vana blog. Um, I'm Patrick Emerson, uh, Beeronomics sort of um, <laughs> out there, but uh, you should get in touch. And how you can get in touch is to um, uh, email us at the, the underscore beer acts at yahoo.com or go to the Beervana blog Facebook page. Right on. All right. And do email us. We always ask you. And for some reason, we have never been very good at getting people to contact us through, through, through tweeting or Facebooking or emailing, but um, we would love to hear your thoughts. We would love to hear your questions your reactions your criticisms we always invite you to take a shot at us um tell us how to improve this tell us uh, a show you'd like to hear tell us something yeah absolutely uh feedback please (laughs) 
All right. Uh, or suggestions for other pods as well. We've yeah. gotten some good suggestions in the past. So Yeah. In fact, uh, in the not-too-distant future, we're going to do that history of IPAs thing. I've been looking forward to that. That came as a suggestion from one of our listeners, one of you folks out there. That's so right. It's on tap. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, until then, uh, cheers, Jeff. Cheers. We don't have anything to actually clink with. with so yeah. it, we're making it right now. It's, uh, that's won't right. Be, won't be ready for a while. <laughs> Imagine it in your head. All right. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.